The heinous crimes of Ted Bundy captured a nation as he stood trial for murder in Florida. At the time, few knew his true body count in a series of murders that spanned multiple states on the other side of the country. In the years since, his seemingly incongruent demeanor and reputation, earned or not, as a smart and charming killer, has inspired multiple movie adaptations, the most recent of which stars none other than Zac Efron. This is based on a true crime. I'm Chelsea, and I love true crime. And I'm David, and I love horror movies. And we're back. We are back. Yeah. <laughs> After a long hiatus. Yep. Popping up out of nowhere. See, we promised we'd be back. Yeah. And thanks so much to everyone who's been sticking with us, especially our Facebook cult members. You know, I think we have a real treat for you guys today because this is one that we've been talking about for ages. You know, we lived in Cincinnati where this was filmed. We went to the prop sale for this movie and you know a lot of people were, were posting about it and uh yeah we're we're doing it i that's right i spent 12 hours researching ted bundy just for you it wasn't always pleasant <laughs> yeah yeah and then the, yeah the prop sale so um yeah we have the the tv that was in his prison cell in florida in the movie oh yeah that's i'm, I'm in... looking at it right now out of the corner of my eye yeah that was really the most exciting part about the movie to me was looking for any yeah. of the things that we got at that prop sale yeah Spoiler alert. Yeah. That was the most exciting part of the movie for me, too. <laughs> but before we get to that, I think we should tell the, the good people about Ted Bundy, because, you know, no one knows that this is really not a very well-known case. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Ted who? Ted Buddy. Ted Buddy, according to my uh, Apple autocorrect. <laughs> yeah. 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 Ted Bundy is not anyone's buddy. No. All right. Shall we dive in? Yeah, let's do it. All right. On January 4th, 1974, an 18-year-old University of Washington student named Karen Sparks was asleep in her basement apartment when an unknown assailant entered her room. She was brutally attacked, bludgeoned, and sexually assaulted with a metal rod taken from her bed frame. The attack put her in a coma for 10 days and left her with brain damage and memory loss. She never regained her memory of the attack. Less than a month later, in the early hours of February 1st, another University of Washington student, 21-year-old Linda Ann Healy, was abducted from her basement bedroom. When her alarm went off that morning, her roommate found her room empty with her bed made and seemingly nothing disturbed. Later that morning, the radio station where she worked announcing ski conditions called asking where she was. When she didn't show up at her parents' house for dinner, they went to the apartment. Finding it suspicious that her bed was made, they removed the comforter and found blood soaked into the pillow and bottom sheet. They also found a bloody nightgown hanging in the closet and the top sheet was missing. Whoever attacked Linda had apparently changed her clothes and wrapped her in the bed's top sheet and made the bed before leaving with her, all while four other roommates slept in the same house. Linda and her roommates had heard about the attack on Karen Sparks and were careful to lock all their doors, but the day that Linda disappeared, they discovered the back door had been left open. Over the next few months, college-aged women in western Washington began to disappear with increasing frequency. Donna Gale Manson, a 19-year-old student at Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, went missing on March the 12th after leaving her dorm room to attend a jazz concert. On April 17th, 
18-year-old Susan Elaine Rancourt was abducted from the Central Washington State University campus in Ellensburg. Susan was majoring in biology and had just attended a meeting for future residence hall leaders before heading back to her dorm around 10 p.m. Multiple students reported speaking with a man named Ted on campus that night who had his arm in a sling and was asking women for help carrying books to his tan VW bug. On May the 6th, 20-year-old Roberta Kathleen Parks, who went by Kathy, disappeared from Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon. In the days leading up to her abduction, Kathy had broke up with her boyfriend and her father had suffered a massive heart attack. Upset, Kathy had made plans to meet some friends at Memorial Union Java Stop that night. She left her dorm around 11 p.m. and never arrived. 22-year-old Brenda Carol Ball spent the evening of May the 31st at the Flame Tavern in Burien, Washington. Free-spirited and fun-loving, Brenda had no qualms about attending the bar alone, but had made plans to meet back up with her friend at Sun Lakes on the eastern side of the state. Initially, she had hoped to get a ride with one of the band members, but he was going in the opposite direction. Brenda was last seen alive in the tavern's parking lot, talking with a man whose arm was in a sling. Just a little more than a week later, on June the 11th, 18-year-old University of Washington student Georgianne Hawkins disappeared from campus. It was about 1 a.m., and Georgianne had just attended a fraternity party at Beta Theta Pi. She was heading back to her sorority, Kappa Alpha Theta, just 300 feet away down a brightly lit alley. She never arrived. Witnesses reported seeing a man with a leg cast struggling with a briefcase in that area. One woman reported that the man had asked for her help carrying the briefcase in his light brown VW bug. July 14, 1974, was a hot day in the Pacific Northwest, with temperatures exceeding 90 degrees. It was also the annual Rainier Picnic at Lake Sammamish, hosted by Rainier Beer. The event attracted an estimated 40,000 people, including 23-year-old Janice Ann Ott, a probation officer who worked in Seattle. She left for the lake that morning with her yellow 10-speed bicycle, letting her roommate know that she'd be sunning herself at Lake Sammamish. Although recently married, her husband James was attending medical school in California. Shortly after arriving at about 12.30, Janice was approached by a man with his arm in a sling. According to witnesses, the man asked Janice for help loading his sailboat into his car. He told her that the sailboat was at his parents' house just down the road. Janice agreed on the condition that she'd be able to take her bike and ride in the sailboat once they launched it. The man agreed, and the two headed to the parking lot. As they walked, the man introduced himself as Ted. Janice was not seen alive again. Later that afternoon, at around 4.40, 19-year-old Denise Marie Nasland left her boyfriend, Kenneth Little, and friends Nancy Batima and Bob Sargent in their picnic area to go to the restroom. At the same time, a Seattle policewoman was in the restroom and noticed a man with his arm in a sling pacing nearby. As she left, she saw Denise talking to the man. She was the last person to see Denise alive, other than her killer. Her friend stayed at the park and searched for her until it got dark. At around 9 p.m., her boyfriend drove Denise's car to her mother's house and informed her that her daughter was missing. Her mother, Eleanor, gave an interview a few days later where she said, quote, Denise is very loving and would often pick me up a gift for no special occasion, and I have always felt very close to her. When she walks into my home, it's just like sunshine coming through the door. 
In the ensuing days, multiple women reported encounters at the lake with the man whose arm was in a sling. One woman, Janice Graham, had followed him to the parking lot at around 11.30 a.m. before she saw that there was no boat and declined to ride with him to his parents' house when he said that the boat was actually there. A 16-year-old girl was approached by him at around 4 p.m., but was put off by how nervous he seemed and how he didn't want to take no for an answer. She refused to go with him to the parking lot. He approached another woman, Patricia Turner, near the concessions at 4.15, but she also refused. Immediately afterward, he asked Jacqueline Plisky. She refused on the basis of not being very strong, and he replied by saying it was better to ask someone who was alone for help. Unnerved, she told him she was waiting for somebody. On July 22nd, the Seattle Times ran a composite sketch of the man named Ted, along with stories of the women's encounters and a description of his VW bug, which had erroneously been described as metallic. A co-worker showed the article to Elizabeth Liz Klopfer and remarked on how similar it looked to her boyfriend, Ted Bundy. At first, Liz discredited the coincidence based on the fact that his bug was tan and not metallic. However, the article got her thinking about some strange occurrences. On July 14th, the day the women disappeared from Lake Smamish, Ted was supposed to meet Liz and her daughter at Carkeek Park, but never showed. There was also a strange incident on the 4th of July when the pair had gone rafting on the Yakima River and Ted had suddenly and violently pushed her off the raft into the icy cold water. According to Liz, quote, his face had gone blank as though he were not there at all, and he made no move to help her re-enter the raft. The media attention following the Lake Smamish abductions resulted in an overwhelming number of unsolicited tips and sightings. According to Bob Keppel, the King County detective heading the Ted Squad task force, Denise Naslin herself could have called in and told us she was fine and we wouldn't have found the message for a week. Eventually, when her suspicions became too great to ignore, Liz herself would call the tip line, but just like the phone call from Ann Rule about her friend and fellow suicide hotline volunteer, the tip would be lost amongst a mountain of Ted-related paperwork. Ted Bundy was born Theodore Robert Cowell on November 24, 1946, at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. The identity of his father is unknown, and for the first years of his life, he was raised by his maternal grandparents while believing that his mother, Eleanor Cowell, was his older sister. His grandfather was physically abusive, and eventually Eleanor took Ted and moved in with her cousins in Tacoma, Washington. It was there that she met John Bundy, a hospital cook. The pair wed, and Johnny officially adopted Ted. According to Ted, he had a troubled upbringing. He started drinking at a young age and would wander the neighborhood drunk, searching for pictures of naked women in people's trash or looking in windows to try to find women undressing. He was arrested twice on suspicion of burglary and auto theft before he turned 18. Ted also described himself as a loner, although classmates claimed he was well-known and liked. After graduating high school, Ted enrolled in the University of Puget Sound. After a year, he transferred to the University of Washington in Seattle to study Chinese. During his junior year, Ted met Diane Edwards. According to Ted, she was his ideal girl, beautiful and well-dressed and from a very well-off family. She became his first girlfriend, but after going home to California for the summer, Diane began to doubt whether Ted was driven enough to be her long-term partner. She broke off the relationship. 
Ted, who had dropped out of UW briefly in 1968, re-enrolled as a psychology major with the goal of becoming the type of man Diane was looking for. Around this time, he visited the East Coast and learned the true identity of his mother after finding his birth certificate. In 1969, Liz Clofer met Ted Bundy at a bar in Seattle called the Sandpiper Tavern. Trying to avoid the attention of another man, Liz spotted Ted at the bar and struck up a conversation by telling him, quote, you look like your best friend just died. Liz was a recently divorced single mother, new to the area and working as a secretary at the University of Washington School of Medicine. The two spent the night together, although nothing happened between them. Ted made breakfast the next morning, and the two soon began dating. They continued to date on and off for the next decade. In 1971, Ted began volunteering at Seattle's Suicide Hotline Crisis Center. It was there that he met and struck up a friendship with Anne Rule, a former police officer who ended up literally writing the book on this case. Anne wrote that she liked Ted immediately. The day they began working together, he brought her a cup of coffee and, gesturing to the banks of phones, said to her, quote, You think we can handle all this? Anne remembered thinking, quote, I were younger and single, or if my daughters were older, this would be almost the perfect man. On the other hand, her dog, who loved everyone, never liked Ted. So apparently he was a better judge of character. Always trust your dog. Yes, absolutely. Well, in 1972, Ted graduated college and began volunteering for the campaign of Republican Governor Dan Evans, a position which allowed him to rub shoulders with all sorts of influential Republican politicians. He became an assistant to Ross Davis, chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. Based on recommendations written by Evans and Davis, Ted was accepted into Seattle University's law school in 1973. Around this time, Ted rekindled his relationship with Diane Edwards, despite continuing to be in a serious relationship with Liz. Diane was smitten by this new and improved Ted. The pair discussed getting married, and Ted even introduced Diane to Governor Evans as his fiancée. Then, without warning, Ted cut off all contact with Diane. Months later, she was able to talk to him and ask why he broke things off. He replied by saying, quote, I have no idea what you mean. In a later interview, Ted said that the whole thing had been a long con to prove that he could have married her. Ted had cut off all contact with Diane in January of 1974, and January 4th was his first known attack on Karen Sparks. During the year of 1974, Ted began working as assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission. While there, he wrote a pamphlet for women on rape prevention. He also met and became romantically involved with Carol Ann Boone, a divorced mother of two while working in Olympia at the Department of Emergency Services. This department was involved in searching for a few of the women who went missing in the area. On September 6th, two grouse hunters discovered the skeletal remains of Janice Ott and Denise Nasland near a service road in Issaquah, two miles east of Lake Sammamish State Park. Although they didn't realize it at the time, a femur and vertebrae found with these remains actually belonged to Georgian Hawkins. By then, Ted Bundy was no longer living in Washington. After being accepted to the University of Utah Law School, he moved to Salt Lake City in August of 1974. It wasn't long before disappearances began there as well. On October 2nd, 16-year-old Nancy Wilcox disappeared from Holiday, a suburb of Salt Lake City, after leaving her house to get a pack of gum. She was last seen riding in a VW Bug, described as yellow. 
A little more than two weeks later, on October 18th, Melissa Ann Smith, the 17-year-old daughter of Midvale's police chief, disappeared after leaving a pizza parlor. Her nude body was found nine days later in a mountainous area nearby. On October 31st, Laura Ann Amy disappeared after leaving a cafe just after midnight in the nearby town of Lehigh. Her body was found in American Fork Canyon on Thanksgiving Day. On November 8th, 18-year-old Carol Durant was shopping in the Fashion Place Mall when she was approached by a man who introduced himself as Officer Roseland. He said he was a police officer with the Murray Police Department and informed Carol that someone was trying to break into her car. Although she found nothing missing, she agreed to accompany him to the police station. Quickly, she became suspicious. The man was driving a VW Bug rather than a patrol car, and he smelled like alcohol. She pointed out that he wasn't driving towards the police station, and he pulled over and attempted to handcuff her. A struggle ensued, and he accidentally fastened both handcuffs to the same wrist. She was able to fight him off and escape from the car. Later that night, 17-year-old student Deborah Jean Kent disappeared from Viewmont High School. She had been attending a theater production, but left early to pick up her brother. A teacher and another student who attended the production reported being asked by a strange man to go with him to the parking lot to identify a car. Police found a key in the parking lot that fit in the handcuffs from Carol Durant's failed abduction. Around this time, Liz became aware of the rash of disappearances and murders in Salt Lake City coinciding with the arrival of Ted. For a second time, she called the Ted Squad tip line. I have a lot of trouble saying Ted Squad. Uh... <laughs> informing them about the Salt Lake City attacks. The following month, she called the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office to inform them of her suspicions about Ted. Despite this, she continued to be involved with him romantically. He even stayed with her for a week in January of 1975 after finishing his final exams. That same month, women began disappearing in Colorado. Around 400 miles from Salt Lake City in the ski resort town of Snowmass Village, Karen Eileen Campbell disappeared from the Wildwood Inn. Karen, a 23-year-old registered nurse, was there with her fiancé, a doctor attending a medical conference, and his children. She was with her fiancé in the lobby on the evening of January 12th when she decided to run up to her room to get a magazine. Somewhere along the hallway between the elevator and her room, she vanished. 36 days later, her body was found bludgeoned to death in a snowbank just three miles from the inn. On March 15th, a ski instructor in Vail, a Colorado town 100 miles from Snowmass, was the next victim. 26-year-old Julie Cunningham disappeared while walking from her apartment to meet a friend for dinner. Meanwhile, back in Washington, the remains of Linda Ann Healy, Susan Rancourt, Kathy Parks, and Brenda Ball were found on Taylor Mountain, close to Issaquah, where the Lake Smamish victims were found. Although an exact cause of death could not be determined at that point, they had all suffered severe blunt force trauma. On April 6th, 25-year-old Denise Lynn Alverson disappeared in Grand Junction, Colorado, while biking to her parents' house. On May 6th, in Pocatello, Idaho, 12-year-old Lynette Dawn Culver disappeared from Alameda Junior High School. Neither victim's body was ever found. Ted spent a week back in Seattle with Liz in early June, and they discussed getting married, despite the fact that Ted was having an ongoing relationship with a co-worker from his time in the Washington State DES, Carol Ann Boone, as well as a relationship with a fellow Utah law student, 
Also, despite the fact that Liz had talked to police in both Seattle and Salt Lake City about her suspicions that Ted was a serial killer they were looking for. Later that month, 15-year-old Susan Curtis disappeared from Brigham Young University, where she was attending the Bountiful Orchard Youth Conference. On August 16, 1975, Utah Highway Patrol Officer Bob Hayward was patrolling Granger, a suburb of Salt Lake City, when he encountered a tan VW bug cruising a neighborhood in the pre-dawn hours. He became suspicious when the driver fled upon spotting his patrol car, so he gave chase. After pulling the car over, he discovered that the front passenger seat had been removed and placed into the back seat. He also found a ski mask, a mask made from pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, and an ice pick in the car. The driver, one Ted Bundy, claimed that the mask was from skiing and he had found the handcuffs in a dumpster. And everything else was just perfectly innocuous household items. Oh, You know yeah. how we all have a mask made of pantyhose and an ice pick laying around the house, right? Yeah, I know I do. Yeah. I so, <laughs> no, you definitely don't. Uh, so between the suspicious items, the fact that his car matched Carol Durant's description and his name already being in their system due to the phone call from Liz, he was arrested. When they searched his apartment, they found a ski resort guide with a check mark by the, by the Wildwood Inn, where Karen Campbell disappeared, and advertising material for the play that Deborah Kent was attending before she disappeared. Still, Ted Bundy was released on his own recognizance. According to his later confession, that night he destroyed a collection of Polaroids that he had of his victims hidden in the apartment. Ted was placed under 24-hour surveillance as police built their case against him. They flew to Seattle to interview Liz, who did not hold back as she described all of Ted's odd proclivities and threatening behavior, such as becoming angry when she said she wanted to cut her hair or waking up to find him examining her body under the comforter with a flashlight. Creepy. Yeah. When Ted sold his VW Bug in September, police immediately impounded it and searched it top to bottom, finding hairs which they believe belonged to Karen Campbell, Melissa Smith, and Carol Durant. Carol also immediately identified Ted from a lineup as Officer Roseland. Ted was charged with aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault based on Carol Durant's case. While out on bail, he spent most of his time at Liz's Seattle home. Although police were suspicious that Ted was the killer they sought, they did not have sufficient evidence, although he was kept under constant surveillance while there. Meanwhile, Jerry Thompson from Utah, Robert Keppel from Washington, and Michael Fisher from Colorado, the investigative leads for the series of murders in each state, finally met in person in Aspen, Colorado, to discuss the evidence. By the end of the meeting, each detective was convinced that Ted Bundy was their man. Ted stood trial in February of 1976. Due to the negative publicity surrounding his case, he waived his right to a jury. Carroll testified against him on the stand, and on March 1st, Judge Stuart Hansen Jr. found him guilty. He was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in the Utah State Prison. Already during this first prison sentence, Ted began hatching plots to escape. He was once found hiding in some bushes in the prison yard with a kit containing roadmaps and an airline schedules. In October, Ted was charged with the murder of Karen Campbell, and after waiving extradition proceedings, he was transferred to Aspen in January of 1977. That June, preliminary hearings began at the Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen. 
because Ted decided to represent himself rather than hire an attorney. He wasn't made to wear handcuffs or shackles. He was also given permission to do research in the courthouse's law library on the building's second floor. It was there that Ted made his first successful escape, jumping 25 feet to the ground, spraining his ankle. He hiked onto Aspen Mountain and broke into a hunting cabin, stealing food and a rifle. He left and continued hiking south, but got lost. He ended up stealing a car and driving back into Aspen, where he was re-arrested. Back in the Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs, Ted once again began to hatch a plan for escape. This despite the fact that the murder case against him really wasn't that strong. Carol Ann Boone had been sneaking money into the jail for him over multiple months, and he managed to acquire a hacksaw blade and a prison map. He sawed a one-foot square hole in the ceiling of his cell, and after losing 35 pounds, found that he could squeeze through the gap. Somehow without being noticed, he took multiple practice runs of climbing out of his cell and around the crawl space above. Finally, on December 30th, Ted made his move. He piled books under his blankets to make it look like he was in bed and escaped through the crawl space. He stole a car, but it broke down in the mountains just outside of town. From there, he hitchhiked to Vail, caught a bus to Denver, and flew from there to Chicago. By the time he was discovered to be missing at noon on December 17th, he was already halfway across the country. From Chicago, Ted took a train to Ann Arbor, Michigan, stole a car, and drove to Atlanta before finally taking a bus to Tallahassee, Florida. He arrived there on January 8th and signed a rental agreement for an apartment in a boarding house called The Oaks near Florida State University using the alias Chris Hagen. After arriving, Ted resolved to find legitimate employment and stop his criminal ways. This lasted for all of one week. Around 3.15 in the morning on January 15, 1978, Nita Neary returned to FSU's Chi Omega sorority house after a date. She entered through the back door, which had a faulty lock. After walking into the darkened living room, she heard footsteps coming down the stairs. She remained quiet and hidden as a man carrying what looked like a club left the house through the front door. Nita ran upstairs and woke up her roommate, Nancy Dowd. She told her about the man, and they decided to wake up the sorority president. The three women were talking in the hallway when, at about 3.19 a.m., Karen Chandler stumbled out of her room. As they approached her, they looked into her room and noticed her roommate, Kathy Kleiner, sitting in bed, holding her broken jaw as blood filled her hands. The girls called the police, and a pair of officers patrolling nearby were the first to the scene. They found Karen and Kathy both brutally beaten with broken jaws, but conscious. Neither girl remembered much of the attack. Inside other bedrooms in the house, police found the bodies of 21-year-old Margaret Margaret Bowman and 20-year-old Lisa Levy. Both had been beaten and strangled, and Lisa had been sexually assaulted and had a deep bite mark on her left buttock. All four attacks had been carried out in about 15 minutes without any of the more than 30 other girls in the home hearing anything. That same morning, just eight blocks away, Debbie Ciccarelli awoke to the sound of banging. She could hear her neighbor, Cheryl Thomas, also an FSU student, moaning and whimpering through the wall. She called Cheryl, and when there was no answer, she called the police. Responding officers found Cheryl on the floor of her apartment, severely beaten with her skull fractured in five places. Her injuries left her with equilibrium damage that ended her dreams of becoming a dancer. Describing the attack, Cheryl said, quote, He had worn a hose over his face that had eye holes cut in 
and a knot tied at the top. He pulled that off, and that was dropped on my floor. If I did not have my neighbors right next door to hear something, I don't think I would have survived. It was that close. Police found semen stains on her bed and in the mask. They found hairs that they later matched to those of Ted Bundy. On February the 8th in Jacksonville, 14-year-old Leslie Paramenter was approached by a man in a parking lot claiming to be a member of the fire department named Richard Burton. Luckily, in that moment, her older brother arrived and the man retreated. Later that day, 12-year-old Kimberly Diane Leach disappeared from Lake City Junior High School. She had been called back to homeroom after forgetting her purse there, and on her way back to class, she vanished. Her body was found seven weeks later in a pig shed near Swanee River State Park. On February 15, 1978, at 1.30 a.m., Pensacola Police Department patrolman David Lee noticed a car driving erratically. When he ran the plates, he discovered it was stolen, and upon pulling the driver over, a struggle ensued. After finally tackling the suspect to the ground, he was placed under arrest. Inside the car, police found three IDs belonging to female FSU students, 21 stolen credit cards, and a stolen TV. The man refused to identify himself, and as Officer Lee drove him to prison, the man said to him, quote, I wish you had killed me. Two days later, on February 17th, Ted finally revealed his true identity to the police, and it didn't take long for them to connect him to the Chi Omega murders. He was indicted in July for the murders of Margaret Bowman and Lisa Levy, and the attempted murders of Cheryl Thomas, Kathy Kleiner, and Karen Chandler. The following May, he was given a chance to avoid the death penalty if he admitted to the murders, but he refused. He stood trial in June of 1979, after a change of venue to Miami. His was the first trial to be nationally televised in the United States. The trial was a circus, with Ted once again deciding to take the lead in defending himself. His own public defenders took the position that the fact that he believed he could serve as his own lawyer was proof that he was not competent to stand trial. One of his attorneys, Margaret Good, described his behavior as erratic, impulsive, and strange, which was really an understatement. He made odd requests in front of the judge for things like more exercise time and filed a motion for a change of menu when he became sick of eating grilled cheese. Get it? Like a change of venue, uh-huh. a change of menu. Yep. Yeah, he was that crazy. Uh, so Ted also seemed to relish in cross-examining first responders and having them describe the crime scenes in detail. One of the key pieces of evidence against Ted were the teeth marks left on Lisa Levy. Prior to the trial, police organized a surprise trip to get a dental impression from Ted so that he wouldn't have a chance to grind his teeth down. Forensic odontologists Richard Soveron and Lowell Levine matched this impression to a photograph of the bite marks, and it matched up perfectly with Ted's very distinct tooth alignment. While on trial, Ted acquired a bit of a fan following, with some women claiming that he didn't look, quote, like the type to kill someone. Still other women came to trial dressed up like one of his typical victims, with long hair parted down the middle and hoop earrings. On July 24th, the jury deliberated for less than seven hours before finding Ted guilty of the Chi Omega murders. One week later, Judge Edward Coet sentenced him to death, saying, quote, 
The court finds that both of these killings were indeed heinous, atrocious, and cruel, and that they were extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and the product of a design to inflict a high degree of pain and utter indifference to human life. It is ordered that you be put to death by a current of electricity, and that current be passed through your body until you are dead. In an exchange after the sentence was given, Judge Coet told Ted, quote, You'd have made a good lawyer. I'd have loved to have you practice in front of me. But you went another way, partner. Six months later, Ted Bundy went on trial for the murder of Kimberly Leach. Based on the testimony from a witness who claimed to have seen Ted lead Kimberly into his van, and fibers found both in his van and on Kimberly's body, he was found guilty. During the sentencing hearing, Ted proposed to and married Carol Ann Boone in the courtroom as she was serving as a character witness. On February 10, 1980, Ted was sentenced to death for a third time. While on death row, he impregnated Carol and they had a daughter together in 1981. Immediately after being sentenced, Ted began filing appeals. However, at the same time, he began to willingly speak about the murders, at first talking in the third person about the thought processes he believed were behind the killing. He spoke in interviews with Special Agent William Hagmeyer of the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit, describing his desire to possess his victims both through the acts of sexual assault and murder, and by revisiting their remains. He also implied the existence of more victims prior to Linda Ann Healy in 1974, saying that was the point of transition from an amateur impulsive killer to becoming a true predator. In 1986, an execution date of March 4th was set for the Chi Omega murders, but a brief stay was given and it was rescheduled for July 2nd. That April, Ted gave a lengthy confession to Agent Hagmeyer, describing how he often tricked his victims by feigning injury. He described returning to the bodies he left on Taylor Mountain and performing sexual acts on them until they were too decomposed. He also said that he kept the severed heads of several victims in his apartment before dumping them in the mountains. After this confession, Carol divorced Ted and moved back to Washington. She felt betrayed, having wholeheartedly believed in his innocence. Less than 15 hours before he was scheduled to be executed, Ted was given an indefinite stay based on a number of factors, including the fact that the jury was tied 6-6 when deciding between death penalty or life in prison and were told erroneously that they needed to break the tie. The death sentence for the murder of Kimberly Leach remained, and it was ultimately this sentence that would be carried out on January 24, 1989, after an appeal to the state Supreme Court failed. Uh, finally, after exhausting every appeal... Ted agreed to give a full confession to Bob Keppel, the Seattle investigator who led the Ted squad. In the days leading up to his execution, Ted described in detail and on tape the murders he was suspected of committing in the Pacific Northwest, along with five more murders that investigators had never connected to him. He talked about burning the head of one of his victims, Donna Manson, in Liz's fireplace, saying that of all the things he had done to her, quote, this is probably the one she is least likely to forgive me for. Poor Liz. Polly Nelson, a previous member of his defense team, who was also present for some of his confessions, described his demeanor by saying, quote, It was the absolute misogyny of his crimes that stunned me, his manifest rage against women. He had no compassion at all. He was totally engrossed in the details. His murders were his life's accomplishments. 
Even as he confessed, he purposefully left out details as part of a strategy dubbed his, quote, bones for time scheme, uh, which was basically him attempting to get his execution postponed as investigators searched for bodies and attempted to corroborate the existence of previously unknown victims. His last chance came when Diana Weiner, a Florida attorney and rumored love interest of Ted's, contacted multiple families of his victims whose bodies were missing, asking if they would petition Florida Governor Bob Martinez to postpone the execution so Ted would have more time to confess. Every family refused, and Governor Martinez released a statement saying, quote, We are not going to have the system manipulated. For him to be negotiating for his life over the bodies of victims is despicable. At 7.16 a.m. on January 24th of 1989, Ted Bundy was put to death in the Ryford electric chair. In a pasture across the street, hundreds of attendees celebrated with fireworks, song, and dance. As his body was carried away in a white hearse, they all cheered. On the opposite coast, it was a little after 4 a.m. when Rose, the mother of Denise Naslin, received the phone call that it was over. She had fulfilled her wish, written in a scrapbook and addressed to Denise, to live to see Ted executed. The end. The end of Ted Bundy. Yep. So that's the harrowing case of Ted Bundy. Definitely one of my least favorite to research. I think it's, uh, you know, hard when there are just so many victims and each one has their own story that's, you know, way better than Ted's story, but is just lost. <laughs> yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah, totally. No. Uh, whew, God, Ted Bundy's awful. Yeah. Oh, he's he's absolutely terrible. And, you know, it's uh, it's almost heartbreaking to, you know, see see the way that he's kind of talked about in a lot of media and has been given this uh, really glorified reputation of just, you know, charming his way you know, into these women's lives and then killing them. And it's like, no, he faked being injured and they took pity on him and they were good people that, you know, wanted to help this, this person who seemed to be struggling with, you know, carrying books to his car when his arm's in a sling. And then he just murdered them. So Ted Bundy sucks. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I think we'll probably talk quite a bit more about the mischaracterization of, of Ted as we get into the movie. Uh, before we do that, I do want to shout out my sources. Um, there's a great article on what lies beyond, and that was all about um, those Lake Sammamish murders in July of 1974. Uh, ABC News has an article. It's the timeline of Ted Bundy's brutal crimes. All that's interesting.com had a very interesting article about about Ted Bundy. Uh, Oxygen had, um, I think, a very useful timeline that was um, the female victims of Ted Bundy's heinous crimes, which you know, I like because so many sources don't even name them all, you know, because there's there's a lot. Um, and then, of course, Wikipedia. All right, cool. So we're going to dive into a very accurate portrayal of Ted Bunny's life. And ha, ha, oh, ha, wait. Ha, ha. <laughs> Spoiler alert, not accurate. But um, anyway, sit tight. We will be right back with a discussion of extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile. 
back a chronicle of the crimes of ted bundy from the perspective of elizabeth his longtime girlfriend who actually that's like the way the movie is posited but it is not from her perspective really yeah it's that's kind of the the line or how do they describe it it's like you know from the views of like the women who shaped him or something something really weird i'm like it's like a a feminist take on ted bundy except it's not at all no 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 it's um yeah it has a really weird perspective i mean it it feels like a showcase for zach efron to play ted bundy but not to um to have you hate him because they show none of the crime spoiler alert yeah till the very last possible second are we are we getting into it this early (laughs) or do you want to talk about the behind the scenes yes 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 we will talk about the making of the film just a little bit and then we'll dive in because i think that's the majority of the discussion is talking about yeah that kind of stuff um well we just spent so much time about the crimes and and i feel like you know the expectations of this movie was really high and didn't necessarily fulfill on that promise however there's a lot of talent around the film uh, it is uh, became a Netflix original after premiering uh, at the Sundance Film Festival on January 26th of this year. This film is directed by Joe Berliner and a screenplay by Michael Werwe. A lot of the inspiration for the script is from Elizabeth Kopfler's 1981 memoir, The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy. The director, Joe uh, Berliner, he debuted his first film, which was Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2. And that came out in the year 2000. Um, and this is sort of a meta commentary on the Blair Witch. Uh, I believe the movie had come out just a year before that. It was like this crazy found footage viral sensation, one of the first movie of its kind. And uh, uh, the, the the film hit and it was, um, it was 
kind of disliked. Have you seen Blair Witch 2? No. I only barely saw Blair Witch 1. I was watching it with like my hands over my eyes. It really <laughs> scared me. Yeah. No. Yeah. That was the, so the follow-up is much more of a like horror movie. That's a straight narrative. And it's like, oh, these events were filmed. You know, it was a movie and they're, they're fans of the movie going to the location of where the movie was shot. I remember going to see it and being kind of disappointed. I've seen it since then and it's it's still pretty, it's pretty fun. I don't know. There's some interesting stuff, but uh, very different from uh, the number of documentaries that uh, this director has done because ever since then, he's basically, his whole career has been making sorts of different sorts of true crime documentaries. He did uh, Brothers Keep. Uh, the Paradise Lost trilogy, and that's helped lead to the release of the West Memphis Three. And Very then, cool. yeah. yeah, and then he jumped over to uh, a rock documentary. It's the Metallica, some kind of monster one, and that one is kind of known for redefining the rockumentary, as they call it. Uh, he also did Crude, which is about oil pollution in the Amazon rainforest. The writer, um, the co-writer, I found a good article about him. He it didn't seem like he had a huge list of credits, but he's he apparently had been working on the script for this movie for around ten years, and uh, I guess it was just he kept changing it and adding to it, and it was really sort of taken by Ted Bundy and the murders, um, and that kind of fascinated him. He started kind of getting interested in writing a script about Ted Bundy's domestic life. And that's kind of how the the film came about. There's a an article that I read. It's uh, finaldraft.com's blog. And it has a quote where he says, I didn't think the script would do anything for my career whatsoever. I think it was my 13th completed script at the time. So apparently he's been writing for a long time. And then it slowly took off. It hit the blacklist, which is like this list of unproduced screenplays that are kind of hot and like really well like reviewed. And then finally... They got it together once they were able to secure Zac Efron. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> the financiers are like, yes, oh yes, it's brilliant. Ted Bundy, Zac Efron. Like peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> yeah. So Netflix ended up paying $9 million for the movie. It was already completely produced at that point and filmed. And it was just recently released on May the 3rd directly to Netflix. It had a couple of theatrical screenings here and there. And yeah. Oh, so it can qualify for awards? Yeah. And then yeah. They, I think I read something about they had mentioned um, maybe doing a fall campaign for it. Oh, cut me a break. I mean, <laughs> yeah. well, we have no idea how um, how many people are watching it, though, because Netflix doesn't release like their number. So maybe people are digging it. Maybe they aren't. But based on um, the Ted Bundy tape, which was sort of the came out on Netflix before this, but was done after the director did this movie so did yeah ted bunny tapes also joe berlinger yep yeah yep and uh and so it's kind of a a, a wicked pair a shocking pair of <laughs> shockingly vile pair oh. <laughs> yeah we've already said zach efron several times how can you not i feel like the idea of him as Ted Bundy is a pretty amazing idea. Yeah. I mean, Zac Efron, best known for being essentially a, a Disney star. I mean, he got his start, at least in my head, he got his start on High School Musical, which I did watch. And I was not in high school. I was in college. I, uh, this <laughs> but is, I dug it. Yeah. That's cool. I this is, I think this is the first thing I ever have seen him in. <laughs> yeah. Well, now you at least saw the YouTube video of him dancing around singing that bet on it song yeah we watched that like 30 seconds after finishing the movie 
Yeah. I was like, a little Whoa. whiplash. Yeah. But now he's forever cemented in my head as Ted Bundy instead of like the pop superstar. No, he's always that overly tan, baby-faced basketball player to me. Well, Zac, Af- Zac Efron, of course. We have Lily Collins that plays Liz. So she played Snow White in the movie Mirror, Mirror. And that came out a couple years ago. I yeah. don't know if you saw, saw that or not. Uh, she is also in the uh, Mortal Instruments Instruments movie which i haven't seen any, any of those no i have not either yeah um she was in a romantic comedy though stuck in love nope haven't no, seen that one seen that. i actually don't think i've seen her in anything other than this she plays fantine in that bbc les mis the like super realistic one though the not musical one that we watched the trailer for and it doesn't oh have yeah any of the fun of no anything. i i'm not really interested in that story without the music <laughs> <laughs> yeah i did not know that she plays edith tolkien in that uh tolkien biopic that looks terrible. I do remember seeing her in the trailer, yeah. She did a good job in this movie, I thought, for what the role required. All of the actors seem to really give it their all. Surprisingly, and I had forgotten, um, Jim Parsons is in this movie. He plays the prosecuting attorney, Larry Simpson, uh, and I thought he did a good job. Also, John, John Malkovich plays, uh, I want to say Judge Malkovich. Uh, he plays the judge that presides over the trial in Florida. I thought he was really the best part of this movie, even though like most of the th- his lines were like direct quotes, I, I think, from the transcript from the, the televised proceedings. He definitely sold it, yeah. He gets like, we were talking about this the other day, how like the lines are, well, the judge is kind of like, oh, yeah, Ted Bundy, if you just mind your P's and Q's, you could have been something. And it's like, I, I think it goes beyond that, sir. Yeah, I I don't understand this idea that Ted Bundy was very smart and a, a good lawyer because he was not and he was not just either of those things (laughs) yeah uh so this is a new movie of course there are not as many taglines as we usually have i'm so happy when we get like an older horror movie that has like 15 taglines and they're you know various levels of terrible than a couple of good ones this one is just the uh the standard um inspired by true events and then of course uh the story behind America's most notorious serial killer. At least I appreciate them calling him the most notorious serial killer because I always have issues when movies will falsely claim that they're about America's most prolific serial killer. And it's like, no, no, it's not. Except when it is, which is only one of the cases and not all of the cases. <laughs> Everyone wants to claim that. Like, I would propose one word uh, revision to this tagline. Replace the with a. Uh. It's a story behind one of yes. the stories that te- of Ted Bundy. Yeah. Yeah. All of the stuff that, you know, is not in your face heinous. It's like him goofballing around and practicing how to jump off of the second floor window. Yeah. And just him being such a great surrogate father and such an awesome boyfriend oh my god he's so romantic (laughs) yes he is this movie just kind of skips over so much but like the director was making kind of a big deal about one scene not existing in the movie and i found this article on decider.com and it's called extremely wicked director explains why he invented one major scene in his ted bundy movie the Um, hacksaw scene yeah, yeah yeah um that's just bizarre we're gonna talk about that in a minute his quote is that quote i'm very proud that the movie actually is pretty historically accurate i don't want to say that it's inaccurate i want to say that they did not make good decisions about what to put in the movie and what to take out of the movie i think yes you could probably take ted bundy's entire life 
and pull out two hours that contain him not murdering people. But like, is that the story you want to tell? (laughs) Right. You want to tell the story of Ted Bundy not killing people? Like, no. So before we really dive into this punch this movie in the face, we mentioned earlier about like how, you know, they filmed it close to where we were living. And that's kind of, uh, it was, was a really fun thing about about the film was uh seeing kind of locations yeah. and a little bit just that all like uh oh, we saw you know we were, uh, chelsea was in the car and we got to see props and yeah the tv thing and I'm definitely recognizing you know that area it was mostly was it mostly northern kentucky uh newport right? newport was, yeah well they uh they did the um the jail was at the claremont county jail in southwest ohio as well as Williamson Town in Northern Kentucky. And uh, all the law library scenes were in Northern Kentucky. And that was at the um, Salmon P. Chase College of Law in Highland Heights, Kentucky. And then, yeah, there was all stuff in downtown Newport. Yeah. Yeah, and, the, uh, the buildings there really do look like they the a 1970s period piece just in general but some some scenes were really funny where it's like you know this is all supposed to take place in colorado so like you know jumps out of the window and is like walking around newport kentucky and there's like cgi mountains in the background it's that's kind of funny so that's all the behind the scenes stuff i have this movie just came out not a lot there but um so we lead into a discussion of our thoughts on the film that i found out that there was a petition and i vaguely remember this from like three years ago in 2016 and it was fans were petitioning to cast zac efron as ted bundy when the movie i think was kind of announced so you fans made it happen yeah I mean, not to get like graphic on it, but you know, there are like, there are photos of Ted Bundy after he was executed and like they, they shave his hair and like, that's the photo that I saw like kind of going around when they're like, look, he looks just like Zac Efron, which is weird because I had never seen it. So it's like, congrats, Zac Efron. I'm looking like Ted Bundy's dead body. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I definitely see it and I remember being kind of excited when the um the pictures came out of like kind of him posing with like the board for the mugshot the black and white photo that came out was like one of the first pictures from the filming of the movie and you know yeah no I I thought he he looked like him I thought he did a pretty good job I mean I think he was at his best when he was straight up imitating Ted Bundy and like um you know there was a few like televised interviews with him um so there's the one, I think, when he was interviewed, maybe when he was arrested for the first time in Salt Lake City. And then there's the one of him in Florida where uh, they're talking to you know the, the prosecuting attorney and he's like kind of pacing and walking out of the elevator and being like, this is my chance to talk to the media. It was just, it was just straight up mimicking like all of his mannerisms. And I think, you know, that that is definitely him at his best and it is also Ted Bundy. I think that is what he was like. He was crazy. I think everything else where it's, you know, his interpretation of like what, you know, what, I mean, what the script, what he said the script was about, like Ted Bundy's home life. Like this is something none of us witnessed. And I think that it just really portrayed him as this perfect boyfriend and like very loving surrogate father to Liz's daughter to the point where even in Florida, he had like the picture that Liz's daughter drew of a shark on on the wall of the cell, and it's like I don't believe it for a second. Oh, this is like a a plot device so that the hard ass Florida prosecutor could come in and tear it down. Yes, but what are they trying to do with that? They're trying to make you feel bad for Ted Bundy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're trying to make you feel bad 
for Ted Bundy. Like, what the hell? I I didn't like any of that. I thought it was a very strange creative choice to make. You know, the the scenes of him um, under surveillance when he goes back to Seattle, which, you know, we, we talked about that when we talked about the true story. He was under 24-hour surveillance because at that point, even though he was only arrested for the attempted kidnapping, they believed that he was this serial killer. And they set it up to be so like, oh, a car is following me. Who could it be? I've been seeing this car everywhere. And it's like him trying to like chase after the car. And it's like, this made it feel very like, like he's the victim of some kind of conspiracy. And it's like, poor, poor Ted being like chased out of the library when he's just trying to get ready to defend himself on trial. And it's like, I was just exasperated at that point. Um, but, but yeah, I think, I think it was horrible. I don't, I, don't know. <laughs> I, I could talk about this probably for the next like two hours and I, I don't want to subject our listeners to it. They, the setup for the movie, at least to me, the, the premise of the movie. And I know, you know, we discussed, oh, is it just that the movie is from Liz's perspective? And it's like, well, they didn't put in many of the very suspicious incidents that, you know, Liz has talked about in her memoir and in real life of her finding like plaster of Paris, you know, that he was using to make fake casts, her finding the like stocking mask masks and all sorts of weird stuff her being very suspicious that he is like stealing everything that he owns her seeing him like checking out her body with the flashlight where in the movie you know they made it seem like he was just studying his law things under the covers and it's like you know having him checking her out be like a reveal at the end that you know she like wasn't aware that he was he was checking her out they didn't talk about him you know pushing her off the boat on that July 4th rafting trip they they had her calling Seattle. So like they they did have that, but they didn't have her calling Seattle multiple times and calling Salt Lake City, you no, know. No. They had her call Seattle once and then be like, "Oh, assured that it wasn't him because like the bugs are wrong color or whatever." But like it's because of her that his name is on this list and you know, she's just been living with the the guilt of that while believing that he's innocent. And that's not the case. That's not the case in real life. And just they don't really go into the horrors of his crimes until the last five minutes of the movie. Yeah, <laughs> like, oh, that, totally. is, that is the reveal. The big reveal in this movie is like, spoiler alert, like <laughs> Ted Bundy actually killed all those women. What? I, yeah, it's I feel like I, if I knew nothing about Ted Bundy going in, I could have been convinced that it was a setup. Oh, totally. You know? Yeah, but, I was. They, uh, yeah, that's on purpose. That's what the movie is doing, and they're saying that's because it's from Liz's perspective, but it's it's not. No, it's not. And it's literally the last minute where it's like, you know, here's a graphic image of a dead body, you know, and here's Liz finally giving some narrative to like, you also killed a twelve year old child. When it's like he killed two twelve year old children, <laughs> he picked them up from middle schools he killed like a 15 year old and a 16 year old like this was not just him going after college-aged women not that they're any less victims than children but I, I think that it by trying to limit it to that it's almost like sexualizing it in a way like you know the these are like fully formed women you know in college they probably wear skirts you know, and have long, long flowing hair. They just make it much more about that. They don't talk about him being a necrophile at all, you know, because they're trying to like 
set him up as being attractive everywhere that he is walking in this movie they have like women turning to stare at him like oh my god it's oh like, right yeah yeah the scene at the library so, too where they're just yeah. like all like smiling at him and it then, is yeah. over the top oh my god boo boo to everyone involved except the actors i think that they did a good job with what they were working with but boo 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 to everyone else <laughs> boo 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 i'm so mad about this movie boo i still think it's cool that we own the tv from it though yay yeah <laughs> anyway what do you have to say about the movie david well i'm glad we waited a couple of days because i'm kind of sour on the movie now i have been thinking about what could they have done differently that may have made this movie more more of a success uh, in terms of what it's trying to say and i thought that like quote reveal it would be interesting if it was like at the halfway point this is ted bundy's perception of himself and then it turns to more of a real life a recreation of what happened i think having even just having more scenes interspersed with like him being super creepy with liz would have added a lot to it and it's it's true. It's all true. He tried to kill her. They don't talk about that in the movie. No, they he don't. lit a fire, closed the flue, put like towels under the door to try to kill her. But she like woke up. I don't. <laughs> I'd be curious to what the original script is like, and if it, the shooting script was the same as after the edit, or if there was like more stuff yeah. that was a little more heinous and. I'm I'm honestly shocked that the the script won the that award you were talking about because the best parts of the script were taken from like the actual uh, like courtroom transcripts and yeah well I, it's kind of high concept right it's like here's my pitch what if we make a movie about Ted Bundy but we don't talk about any of the murders it's just about how he traveled through the countryside and got into some trouble with the law <laughs> I don't. I just, I just don't understand. Um, and it's like, you know, Joe, Joe Berlinger made the, the Ted Bundy tapes. And I think that they kind of suffer in a similar way from, you know, really kind of feeding into that like Ted Bundy myth of him being like almost superhuman and charming and smart, but like, at least they talked about the murders. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at totally. least they gave some time to you know his his victims whereas so many in this movie didn't even warrant a mention we shouldn't need to like watch that and then watch this together to like form some image of him and his yeah. crimes you know the idea of a movie where you know there's a person who's a serial killer and it's not revealed to the end you know it's it's not new and it works. I mean, we the Clovich killer that we watched recently, it's a little bit more like BTK, uh, you know, where it's like the the guy is like a father and a pillar in the community. And then the son starts getting suspicious that he's his killer. That's the premise of the Clovich killer. And I, I like it. I think it works. I think it, you know, it really builds suspense and you do have the opportunity to have like a back and forth like maybe he is maybe he isn't um same thing was this summer of 84 yeah with the neighbor and them kind of getting suspicious of of this neighbor being a serial killer and i mean i i like it i i've liked both of those movies a lot you know i think it definitely uh scratches that like horror movie true crime itch that both of us have but it just doesn't work for ted bundy it just doesn't 
you know, and I, maybe it, maybe it could where it's, um, I, f- I know there's like a term for it, but it's basically like, we, we all know he's the killer, but you're like worried about this other character, his like girlfriend, Liz, who does not know. Like, we know you're not tricking anyone. Like Ted Bundy's not tricking anyone at this point. No. We all know. And yeah, to have that, it was so frustrating. I probably would have liked the movie better if like they just dropped Liz completely but like that last scene where it's like this is what we've been waiting for this is actually what the movie is about is it's leading up to this moment (laughs) which is not real you know it's it is the moment that Joe Berlinger talks about being like made up for for the sake of the narrative and it's just it's so stupid it's so stupid that the big reveal is that like he killed people (laughs) I don't oh my gosh (laughs) yeah yeah. Okay. I'm. I can't talk about it anymore. So All right. So I'll, I just want to mention. Take over. No. No. That's fine. It's fine. Um. Uh, yeah. So really, don't. Uh. I think neither of us would give it a recommend. I mean, don't watch it. You know, it's if, on Netflix. If yeah. you have Netflix, you know, you're. I don't think you know watching it will like encourage them to make a sequel where he comes back as a zombie. Although that might be better. Ooh. Hey. Yeah. 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 Totally. Oh. There's a couple of different adaptations of. The t- Ted Bundy's that are out there, and the one that I've read a lot about, but I've never seen it, is the Deliberate Stranger, and that's the one. It was um, like a TV movie, it came out in 1986, and it stars Mark Harmon as the uh, Ted Bundy. He's is he the one in like NCIS or something? He's in some yeah uh, yeah yep one of those shows. I've heard that one's really rather creepy. I have to be honest, I've I've never seen another Ted Bundy movie. I guess I'm just like I I mean I've I read Stranger Beside Me, I've read all about his case, but I. I don't find any of it very interesting. <laughs> in 2003, there was a film. It's Annual Presents the Stranger Beside Me. Uh, and uh, that one starred Billy Campbell as Ted Bundy. I haven't seen any, any of these either. There's one called The Riverman. And that one also, of course, features him as... Uh, but it's Carrie Elway's place. Oh Ted my Bundy. goodness. What? Okay. Now, now I'm intrigued. <laughs> yeah. So that might be one we could check out sometime. Uh, as you wish. Oh, there, yeah. <laughs> there, and then there's Bundy, a legacy of evil. There's like all these crazy titles, but yeah, I've not seen any of those. If you have a favorite Ted Bundy movie, let us know on social media. Yeah. If you have one that you think I would like, let us know. And uh, I can't imagine that there's one that I would like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, t- I'm tired of talking about Ted Bundy and Zac Efron. All right. We should have our outro music be bent on it. <laughs> perfect no right. i think we could probably get in trouble for that yeah maybe well that wraps up our discussion of uh of the movie and uh let's just jump into something a little lighter before we wrap this episode up do you have anything uh for now playing right now oh i'm very tempted to see the i'm very tempted to steal your now playing oh no i can yeah go for i it. can see right in front of me can <laughs> we can we just both do it yeah totally yeah aladdin, aladdin. hey oh. <laughs> It was a lot of fun. We saw it opening day, Friday. And uh, yeah, it was, it was just very enjoyable and sweet. And I, I love the songs from it. And I thought the cast was amazing. And you know, Will Smith, I always have a soft spot for him, having grown up when I grew up. No, the movie's so much fun. And then we uh, we watched the original like that night. I hadn't seen it in so long. I actually forgot like a lot of the plot, like the probably two thirds of the movie. So like we were watching it in the theater. I was, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to that poor magic carpet? Aww. Oh, that crazy genie. He's so silly. Do you have a coming soon? Oh, my coming soon. Uh, I'm going to go with Dead to Me. Oh, I've seen a lot of people recommending it. My mom watched it and really liked it. I'm about to leave on a very long work trip and I'm going to need something 
mind numbing to watch. So I'm hopeful that it'll be good. I'll have to let you guys know. And what's your coming soon? Godzilla King of the Monsters. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I like the um, the one that came out that this is a sequel to a couple years ago, but really not enough Godzilla. A little bit uh, too much holding back on that. And this one is like all of the, the Toho monsters and um, it, it looks like fun. The cast looks good. And the director I really dig, he did uh, Trick or Treat, which is oh, yeah. one of the best Halloween anthologies of all time. And he did Krampus, which is a wonderful Halloween holiday horror movie so oh, i love that one yeah give them some giant monsters and let them wreck havoc around around the world i'm excited for that all right uh, you can find us on social media in all the usual places uh instagram facebook twitter we have a facebook group that you can get to through our facebook page and that is cult of based on true crime and uh that one's a lot of fun so be sure to join us there we also have a patreon which is um currently on hold right now but uh, when we have more time to record more episodes, maybe yep. in July, we'll be back there. I have some ideas for future ones that I think will be pretty fun. So, yeah. so stay tuned. And uh, we are a proud member of the Murderly Podcast Network. Lots of similarly minding in terms of the true crime aspect of it. So check those shows out. Besides podcasting, we also pour our creative hearts into Lab Creature, uh, our indie art business, where we create weird cat art, other animals, and spooky art. So follow us on Instagram at Lab Creature. Our podcast theme and supporting music was composed and performed by Nico Vitis of We Talk of Dreams, who can be found on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams and Instagram, the same handle, and also WeTalkDreams.com. As we wind down this episode, just remember death is but a door. And time is but a window. We'll be back. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.